We all want a deeper community. We all, we all want deeper community. Some of you are new to Denver, to Arvada. Maybe you moved from uh, another place and left friends, left family, and you're here now, and you're kind of restarting in your relationships, and you probably want community. You want to develop community. That may be the reason you're here at church. Maybe you have been here for a while and you desire community. You want to meet people. You want to grow in your relationship with people. Uh, Some of you maybe just want to increase or improve the quality of the relationships that you have. That might be your friendships. That might be your marriage. It might be your family, but you desire and long for and want the relationships that you have to be better. We want deep community. We want to talk about what the community is. And, and as we've been going through the book of Ephesians, if you've and that we are been here, Paul talks about he calls the church, the kingdom, and uses or that we are the, citizens language of God's kingdom. So he says that we are citizens, that we are in some ways like our own country, our own nation, that we are God's people invited to live what it looks like if God was king over us. He says that we are a family that we are brothers and sisters. And especially when this was written, that language wasn't just kind of thrown around casually. To to talk about one another as brothers and sisters meant this deep, close bond. He talks about the church as a temple, that individually we are stones and we're glued together and made into a place where God's presence is known and experienced. And he says that when we do that, when all of that is happening, when we live as a family, when we live as God's citizens, when we live as a temple, when that happens, we together display, show what God is like, that people can see us and say, wow, there must be a good God. There must be something amazing about this God that brings people together, that God's glory is seen. And all of that, the idea of family and the idea of temple and the idea of being God's kingdom, all of that speaks to some of the longing that we have in our desire for community. We want this closeness. We want this depth. We want this quality where people could look at our lives and say, man, there must be an amazing God because of the quality of these relationships, of this marriage, of this family, of these friendships. That, that speaks to the kind of community, the kind of quality and depth that we want. But here's what you know. Here's what I know. That having relationships doesn't mean that they're easy. That having community doesn't mean that it's easy. That having a marriage doesn't mean that it's easy. That having kids or having a family doesn't mean that it's easy. That having friends doesn't mean that it's easy. That having a church doesn't mean that it's easy. There's a difference between having and the quality of it, or the ease of it. Having it doesn't mean that it will have no problems. We can have relationships. We can have all all sorts of relationships and community, but it doesn't mean that there won't be problems. There is often pain. And what Paul is going to do in this passage that we're going to look at is begin to move from, here is what God has done. Here's this gift that's been given to you. Here's this community and this unity that God has created and given to you and now going to move to, and how do you live in that? How do you maintain that? How do you keep that? 
really this is now kind of the halfway point of the book, and it moves from here is all the stuff that God has done to now here's how we live. I think there is 41 commands in the book of Ephesians, 41 imperatives or things that are told for us to do, and only one of them has come before what we are looking at now. So there really is this shift in the book from here's the gift that God's given you, here is what he's done for you, to now how do you live in that? How do you walk that out? And especially in our relationships. Paul will begin to go later, not today, but will begin to talk about marriage and parenting and work and all, all sorts of relationships we have and how we live out what God has done for us and given to us. And if we want to experience all that God wants us to experience, if we want to enjoy and have the gift of what he's done for us actually be realized in our life. If we want that, then we need to know not just that we have it, but how to keep it, how to maintain it, how to actually enjoy it. And that's what he is going to help us see today. If you want to have the depth of community that God desires for you in the church, but in any of your relationships, if you want to have the depth of community, there's three things that we're going to look at that we have to have to keep a unity or a depth or a closeness. Three things that we need to have. Let me read the whole passage and then we'll look at these three things. Here's what he says. Ephesians 4, therefore, meaning based on everything that we have talked about, therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Paul tells us that God has given us this community, he's given us this unity, he's given us relationships, but if we want to experience the depth of that, there's three things that we must have to keep unity in any of your relationships. Three things that we must have to experience the depth that God desires for you. Here, here's the first one. We need to have a fight. Or we could say, why do we need to remember that depth or closeness or unity is a necessary fight? We want closeness, unity, community. Paul talks about all these things, but right after he's been talking about them, and if you've been here, you, you can try to remember the things that he has said, but right after he has said, God's united you, he's brought together two different groups, Jews and Gentiles, all of the nations and God's people, he's brought them together, he's made them one, you're a temple, you're a kingdom, you're brothers and sisters. He's talked about, and last week we looked at his prayer for them, that they would know how much God loves them and they would be able to live in God's love. And then right after that, he basically says, okay, yeah, but you're going to mess it up. That's really what this passage begins to say is I've told you all these beautiful things. And then it's as if, as Paul is writing these things, he goes, yeah, and I know it's not just going to happen. You're going to mess it up. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. It's going to be 
challenging. That's why he says this. He says, I urge you, right after all this stuff, I urge you. Someone doesn't urge you if they don't think that there's going to be some resistance, if they don't think there's going to be some obstacles. I urge you. And he says, make every effort to keep the unity, which implies that if without making every effort, that it's going to be pulled apart. So he presents this beautiful picture of unity and closeness and depth and family and all these wonderful things. It's kind of like when uh, people get married and everything just looks amazing, right? They look their best that they'll ever look. You will never look as good as you did on your wedding day. Sorry. If you haven't been married yet, that's good news. If you have been married, it's bad news, right? That's the best you'll ever look. It's amazing. Someone does your makeup for you. Someone does your hair for you. And that's just the guys. Someone, ladies, you have people that, I mean, it's all, it's, you look great, right? And you make these beautiful promises and everyone's toasting to you and ding, 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 making you kiss. And it's, it's wonderful. And it's like Paul presents that picture and then says, yeah, that's, that's really good. But I urge you to be in community. But I thought we had community. Yeah, but it's going to pull apart. Make every effort to keep the unity. But I thought we already had it. It's amazing. It's wonderful. You told us we were family. Yeah, but it's, it's going to pull apart. It's going to be a fight. And if you want to have what God wants for you, we have to know it is going to be a fight. If you want to keep the depth, the closeness that God desires for you to have in any of your relationships and in the church, in your marriage and in your family, you have to know it is a fight. If you don't know this, if you don't know this, two things happen. One, that we are shocked when it's difficult. We're shocked when it's difficult in the church. We're shocked when it's difficult in our marriages. We're shocked when it's difficult in our family. We, sometimes people will talk about, I, I've had, I have church hurt and I, I'm not trying to belittle that, or there, there might be real things that people have experienced, but sometimes what that means is just, I went to a church and there was problems. Well, yes, Paul is saying, don't be shocked by the fact that it's going to be a fight. It doesn't just happen naturally. It takes an urging. It takes making every effort to keep the unity. It is a fight. The church has always been a place of problems. Uh, that's not, we don't put that front and center on our website. That's not what's used in our ads and on the Easter cards. Welcome. This is a place of problems. Like, oh, that doesn't sound very appealing. You're invited. But that is what's true. The church has always been a place of problems because relationships have always been a place of problems. It's not just the church. I could say marriage has always been a place of problems. Families have always been a place of problems. Countries have always been a place of problems. Relationships come with problems. And the deeper relationships go, the closer they get, the more unite, the closer you get to other people, the more problems often happen. Because you probably don't have a lot of drama with your, your clerk at the, at the grocery store that checks you out, right? I mean, maybe there might be someone that's really rude, but most of the time you're not like, oh, I'm not going to that line. It's George again. And then like, you're probably not, right? Because you don't know him. He might be a total psycho. Maybe you should have problems with him, but you don't know him. The closer you get to people, the more deeper that you go, the more that it is a fight to actually have close community, close relationships. And we have to know that it's a fight because if you don't know that, you'll be shocked when you experience it. 
You'll be startled in the church when that is what happens. And the second reason we need to know that is because if not, if we don't know that it's a fight, we will look for things that are easy. We'll just look for what's easy. We'll look for people that look like us and think, okay, that will be easy if I can just find a bunch of people that look like me. We'll look for people that think like us. Say, if I can just be in a church or in relationships where everybody thinks the same, that will be easy. At times, it's not that we'll try to find people that look like us and think like us, but we'll just do it on our own. Say, well, you know, what works for me with God is just kind of doing my own thing. Because we will look for what is easy if we think that it's not a fight and not supposed to be a fight. We'll look for what is easy. Sometimes kind of more fundamentalist churches, they just all gather around. Everybody looks the same, thinks the same. Nobody can be brought in. There's a movie out right now. Uh, it's a Christian movie, so you know, take it with a grain of salt. Sometimes those suck really bad. This one's actually pretty good. It's called Jesus Revolution, and it's, it's about the Jesus people movement that happened in the late 60s, early 70s. And some of you have no idea what that is. Go see the movie. It's great. But thousands and thousands of young people and hippies were coming to know Jesus, being baptized in the ocean in California and then spread all over the country. It's amazing. Mass revival, one of the biggest revivals in the history of our country. And part of what happened is all of these hippies, all of these peace, love, you know, free this, free that, everything hippies, churches were totally freaked out by them, wouldn't let them in, wouldn't even think about them, closed off. And then when some started to let them in, started to actually bring, even though they looked different, even though they thought different, began to bring them in, revival broke out. People came to know Jesus. People got saved. People's lives changed. People found something deeper than the drugs and free love movement that they were looking for. But what happens is if we're closed off and just think, eh, I don't want it to be, I don't want it to be difficult, you can actually miss out on what God wants to do. He says it's a fight. You need to know it's a fight because if you don't know it's a fight, you'll be shocked when things are difficult. And if you don't know that it's a fight, then you will be looking for what's easy and then miss out on what God actually wants to do. Paul paints, the Bible paints this great picture of community, this great picture of you, your relationships can display who God is. People can look at your family and your marriage and your church and go, wow, that's who God is. He paints this great picture, but he says that it is a fight. Your marriage is a fight. Your family is a fight. Your church is a fight. If you want to experience the depth, the closeness, the unity that God has for you. And you might say, well, if it's so hard, if it's so hard, if community is so hard, if the church is so hard, if relationships are so hard, why fight? And Paul says this. He says that it is worthy. Therefore, walk worthy of the calling you have received. The calling that they have received is God's call into salvation. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about calling the way sometimes we use the word of like, ah, I don't feel called to do that, or I feel called to do this. It's using the word calling in a salvation sense, that God calls us into his family. He calls us away from some things and into life with him. He calls us away from darkness and sin 
and ignorance and resistance to him and our own selfishness. He calls us away from the patterns of this world. This is from Ephesians. The patterns of this world, just buying into the world system. He calls us away from our own fleshly desires and following our own passions and following our own hearts. He calls us away from the temptations of Satan and he calls us into life with him, life listening to his voice, life saved by him, in his family, knowing him, changed by him. He calls us from and he calls us to. And what he says is walk worthy of the calling that you have received which means that because of what God has done for you, because of this calling that he's given to you, your fight for community, your walk for in community, the way that you live, it should be a worthy fight matching what God has done for you. We're, we watched last night the movie, I don't know if you've ever seen it, it's a true story, it's called Cinderella Man, with Russell Crowe. It's kind of old now, and it's not like a classic or anything, but it's a really good movie. And he is this, uh, it, it takes place in the Great Depression. And he's this boxer that goes kind of from, he, he works his way up, and he's almost the champion, and then he kind of has a bad fight, loses, and then he's injured, and now he's just kind of a loser, and it's the Great Depression, and he's poor, and kind of all this stuff. And then he begins to work his way back up. Seems like luck. He, he beats the guy that's the, uh, the runner-up to the champion. He starts having all these wins. It's, he's now successful again. And they ask him in the interview, they say, what, what happened? Like, you were, not to be mean, but you were kind of a loser and nothing was going well for you. And what are you, what, what changed? What are you fighting for? And he says, I'm fighting for milk. And such a simple statement. But what he's saying is, this, is, this isn't, you know, so if you've ever seen the Rocky movies, which, you know, we're, we're just kind of going through a movie history of boxing, okay? So then we, we can even go Raging Bull and go way old school if you want. But we're, we're just, talking about, just talking about boxing movies right now, okay? So if you watch the Rocky movies, most of, and I love the Rocky movies, okay? So no shade on Sylvester Stallone, okay? If, if, but the Rocky movies, it's all about him fighting in every movie for his identity and his value. So he says, I, I got to prove that I'm not a bum. Same thing in Creed. I've got to prove that I'm not a mistake. And the fight is for your own worth. This movie is different because he's saying, what I'm fighting for is to provide for my family. And so I'm willing to do anything. I'm willing to die. I'm willing to, to fight. He fights you know, with a broken hand. I, I'm willing to do anything because I'm fighting for milk. I'm fighting not just so I can prove to myself how great I am. I'm fighting for my very family's sustenance, providing for them. It is a worthy fight. And so he'll be in the ring and these images of his family sick and bills that are past due and he'll be in the ring and those images come to his mind and then he just kind of you know, goes beast mode and start, you know, becomes gladiator and then starts fighting because it's Russell Crowe. So he just starts fighting and we're like, whoa, where'd this come from? And he just, it, it's because he's fighting a worthy fight. What Paul is saying here is, what God has done for you, what he has done for you, the calling that he has given to you, it's worth everything to fight for. That where he's brought you from and what he's brought you to and the family that he's given you and the quality of relationships he's given you, walk worthy of that. This, this has a weightiness that is big. Walk worthy, fight for unity, worthy of what he has done for you. 
Another way that you can think about what walk worthily means is it's, it's not just walk equal to what's been done for you, but it's walk in a way that is in line with what's been done for you. Meaning that the way that God saved you, how he saved you, walk in a way that matches that. So an, another analogy could be this. Maybe, sometimes this is in movies. I don't know if I've ever heard someone say this directly, although I'm sure people have. But someone will say something like, uh, you are a disgrace to your family. What, what they mean by that is your family and kind of the name of your family and who your family represents, you are living in such a way that isn't in line with the worth of what your family is. Or sometimes people will say, you're a disgrace to the uniform. Meaning if you're you know, someone that is a police officer or you're a, maybe a captain in the army or you're some, maybe you're the president of the United States and you're a disgrace to the office. I mean, this office carries a value, a weight to it, a worthiness to it, just in what the office is, and the way that you're living is not in line with that. That's another way that we can listen to what Paul is saying here. He is saying, walk worthy of the calling that you have been given. Everything that God has done for you, and the way that he did it, his grace, his mercy, we want our lives to be in line, showing, not, not walk worthy in the sense of I'm proving my worth for what he did, but I'm showing that my life is in line with the beauty, the grace, the mercy that was given to me. This is what Paul says is why it's worth the fight. It's not just a list of things to do that Paul gives to us. Paul does tell us things to do, but it's deeper than that. It's not just, here's the things you should do. It's walk worthy of what's been done for you. Live worthy of what God has brought you into. Do your relationships. Does your marriage, your family, your church relationships, is it worthy? Are you walking worthy of what God has done to bring you into it? Does it show, does it reflect what he has done for you? This is how Christianity always works, by the way. It works that God has done things for us, and then we live in line with that. Sometimes people will talk about it as the imperatives and the indicatives, or the indicatives and the imperatives. And for those of you that are grammar people, indicatives is something that is true that's been done. God has done things for us. And then imperatives is, therefore, how do you live? Commands. God has done things for you. He's blessed you in Christ. He saved you. He's adopted you. He's brought you into his family. He's united you as a community. Therefore, how do you live? That's always how Christianity works. It is that God has done stuff for you, and then it comes from you. It's God has done stuff to you, and then it flows through you. That's why these therefores in, in the writings of the Bible are very important. They help us see that everything that God is saying to us is based on everything that he has done for us. Our life is to be worthy, a reflection of what he's already done, what he's already given, the gift that he's already blessed us with. If we miss that, if we miss that, it's very important, if we miss this, then we might know a bunch of stuff of what God's done and just think that's enough. Paul says, no, there's, God does stuff for you, and then based on that, that has implications. Or if we miss that, we don't even think about the parts of what God has done for us. We just think about everything we're supposed to do. 
supposed to do this, I'm supposed to do this, I'm supposed to do this. But without what God has done for us, it becomes impossible. Because we're just operating out of our own strength and our own power. We're not reflecting on all the grace that's been given to us. And we don't have motivation. We don't have reason. It's just kind of, all right, I'll just try to be a good person and do these things. We need both of them. Which is why Paul spends the first three chapters reflecting on what God has done for us. And if you want to experience the community, the relationships, the depth, the closeness that God has for you, that he desires for you to experience, you have to know it's a fight. It's a fight and it's a worthy fight. It's a necessary fight. He has given you community. He's given you relationships. He's given you himself. He's called you into this and he knows it's difficult. If you feel the difficulty, God knows that. He knows it is difficult. Where do you feel that in your relationships? Where do you feel that closeness and unity and depth is challenging? God knows, and he says, I want you to fight. And if you want it, you have to fight. You have to experience that it is a worthy fight. That's the first thing that we need to have, is we have to have a fight. But secondly, we have to have a focus. Yes, these will all be Fs, just so you know. <clears throat> I, wouldn't do, I wouldn't do anything less to you. We have to have a focus. What do our hearts need to be set on if we want to experience the depth of community? What do our hearts have to be focused on and drilled into? What, what do we have to ha do to be able to have this closeness? Sometimes when we talk about, well, okay, if you want depth, you want community, you, if you want relational quality, what do you need? We might talk about managing the external things that exist. We might talk about, well, I need boundaries, or we might talk about I need some better uh, time management, or I need them to change. If, if you reflect on what needs to happen for your relationships to be better, what needs to happen for them to be closer, for them to be deeper? A lot of times, we're going to think about things out there that need to change. But Paul says, no, it's, it's different than that. What needs to change if you want a depth in your relationship is mainly you. If we want to experience closeness and depth in our relationships, we have to start with, what has to change in me? Our focus can't be, well, I could tell you all the things that they have to change, and then we would have great relationship. Our focus can't be just on tangible things. Sometimes we think, well, if I change this thing, or if I get more time here, if I get more money here, if our living situation is different here, then things will be better. And no, what needs to change, your focus has to actually be on you. Your focus has to be internal. He gives us three kind of different things. The first is he says we need humility and gentleness. These are linked together. It says, with all humility and gentleness. It says, if you want to experience the depth and the quality, you have to have a fight, but you also have to have a focus, and the focus has to be internal. You need to have humility and gentleness. This is, some, and I don't know what you think about when you think about humility and gentleness. Sometimes when people think about humility, they think about just, oh, I'm so stupid. It's kind of just a, I'm so bad. Think about how awful you are. That's what humility is. Just kind of walk around. I'm not that great at this. I'm not that good at this. I'm, I'm just so bad. That's not what humility is. Sometimes people think humility is this 
sort of feigned religiosity that just says, no, not me, not me, not me. I love the way C.S. Lewis says it, that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not just how bad and how dumb and I'm just nobody. And it's not that you're kind of beating yourself up or thinking, uh, thinking so badly of yourself. It's that you're not thinking of yourself. It means you're focused on other people. C.S. Lewis says, if you met a really humble person that you wouldn't think how humble that you wouldn't be like, wow, they, they were so humble that you wouldn't actually even, you would just think how much that they were focused on you. That's what you would think. Because humility is really the opposite of selfishness. It's an outward focus on another person, which the word humility really is this, it's a word that means lowliness and that gets expressed, therefore, in gentleness because we're not trying to assert our rights and our position and our demands. Instead, we are thinking of the other person. We're not thinking about what matters to me and my interests and my concerns and trying to make sure that you see my perspective. We're thinking of the other person. We're thinking of them. Our focus is on them. Anytime we have an eye roll at other people, just kind of a disdain of other people and, and just kind of a, that person or just roll your eyes at somebody, they can be, there can be a spectrum of disgust to just, uh, that, here we go again. That's the opposite of humility. Humility is I am thinking that you matter. I'm thinking that you are weighty. I'm thinking that you are important. I'm considering you. I'm elevating you and lowering myself. I'm honoring you. I'm thinking that what you have to say matters. I'm listening to you. I'm considering you and your way and your life. Doesn't mean that you're saying that everybody is right and that's not what it means, but it means that there's a posture that says, I am treating you as if you matter significantly. I'm not focused on myself but I'm focused on you, treating you as valuable, asking questions of you, being interested in you, learning about you. That's humility. This is worthy of our calling because this posture is emanating from, I know my condition. I know that my condition is that I was a sinner separated from God, and yet he treated me as if I mattered, came after me pursued me, loved me, brought me in. Who was I? Nobody. I was separated from him. I was rejecting him. I was ignoring him. But he treated me as if I mattered supremely and brought me in. So this posture is worthy of our calling because it's how God has treated you. It's how God has interacted with you, that he is gentle with us. He is humble towards us. Think about difficult relationships or think about difficult tension in any of your relationships, whether it's your marriage or your family or community or here at the church. Think about what would happen if this is how you approach things, if this was your focus. I'm going to treat other people as if they matter. I'm going to think less of myself and think of them. If that was your focus, wouldn't things change? Wouldn't things be better? He says we need a focus on humility and gentleness. And then he says we need a focus on patience, with patience, bearing with one another in love. 
with patience, bearing with one another in love. Again, these are linked together. And it has this idea of patience. Sometimes other translations translate this as long-suffering. Because really what this is implying is people are difficult. Even some commentators said that what this means is people are annoying. But that's true. To talk about long-suffering with people means you are causing me suffering. A long-suffering, right? <laughs> to bear with one another in love, to bear with someone means in some ways you're a burden to me. And I'm bearing with you. People are annoying. People are rude. People are disrespectful. People are mean. People are awful. Don't you hate people? <laughs> you wouldn't need patience if that wasn't true. You can sit in your chair in your room and just go, man, I feel really patient right now. I'm so patient. And I really feel like I'm loving right now. I'm just a really loving person. By yourself, that's easy to do. Get married, harder. Add a kid, harder. Add two kids, three kids, four kids. Then you start to see what this means. Join a church, then you start to see what it means. Join a community group, then you start to see what it means. That, wow, I need patience. I need to bear with people. You start to see the difficulty the closer that you get, which is why he tells us he's honest. He's not saying, everybody's fine. Stop Stop being so mean. Stop thinking so bad. He's saying, no, people are difficult. And you have to have a patience and you have to bear with one another in love. Now, this is so key, these, these words, these phrases. I, I, have, I would say just in my experience as a pastor and as a human, I am both of those things, that in my experience, this is one of the key things that without particularly in Christian communities, that without this, I see relationships crumble all the time. That we have to be patient with one another. What does it mean to be patient? It means to be slow, right? That's part of what it means. Long suffering means that it's, you are slow. You're not jumping on things. You're not quick to conclusions. You're patient. You're slow. You are I love the way that Ken Sandy, he's the author of a book called Peacemaker and started a, a, multiple books. He started a ministry called Peacemaking Ministries, really about conflict resolution, and then another ministry called Relational Wisdom. He talks about this idea of patience or being slow or bearing with one another. And think about this, how much of a difference this would make in your relationships. He says, making a charitable judgment or really a slow judgment in some ways means that out of love for God, you strive to believe the best about others until you have facts to prove otherwise. Are you seeking to believe the best about other people unless you've got facts that prove otherwise? In other words, if you can reasonably interpret the facts, a lot of times we look at the same data, you see the same text message, you see the same email, you see the same interaction, you see the same person and there you see the same facts, but we interpret them differently. If you can reasonably interpret facts in two possible ways, God calls you to embrace the positive interpretation over the negative. That's striving to believe the best or at least to postpone making any judgment in, at all until you can acquire conclusive facts. Paul teaches that love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, 
always perseveres. In other words, love always looks for reasonable ways to trust others, to hope that they are doing what is right, and to interpret their words and actions in a way that protects their reputation and credibility. This is the essence of charitable judgment. This is part of what it means to be patient. It means we're slow to jumping to conclusions about things, slow to judging other people's motives and looking at the facts and saying, well, they did this because of this, or they said this because of this, or they didn't do this because of this, or I bet this is what's going on in their life, or I bet this is what, why, what's happening. And say, no, I'm slow to do that. I am slow. In fact, I am patient. I am actually judging charitably. I'm assuming the best, unless it's been proven otherwise. If we did that, imagine how much would change. Man, we, get, we, get, we misinterpret things all the time. We see facts all the time, and we are quick to put our own spin on it. If you think of other people poorly, it will hurt your relationships really bad to be sophisticated about it. Very bad. Don't do, okay? It will hurt them. That's the first thing of what it means to kind of be patient and bear with one another in love is that we look at other people with grace. We assume the best. We fill the gaps in our knowledge with trust instead of suspicion. We fill the gaps in our knowledge with grace instead of doubt unless it's conclusively been proven otherwise. Second thing is that it means that we overlook people's sins. We overlook people's faults. We, other, we overlook the things about people that annoy us. That, that's what it means to bear with people. What Paul is saying is this. Are people going to be sinful to you? Yes. Are people going to be difficult? Yes. Are people going to be different? Yes. Are people going to be difficult? Yes. Are people going to do things that you don't like or do things differently from you or say things that kind of rub you the wrong way or interact in a way that you're like, that's not how I was raised. That's not how I grew up. That, are people going to do? Yes. And what do we do? Paul says, essentially, when he says to bear with one another, get over it. That's what it means to bear with one another. Bear with one another in love. It means that we, as Proverbs says, overlook the offenses that are done to us. So often we think, well, I'm just being real. I just have to speak it as it is. I just have to, I, I, I've got to say my truth. I've got to speak my mind. I can't, you know, I'm just, I'm just telling you what it's like. No, that's not what Paul says to do. He says to bear with one another. Paul says that you will crush people if you are expecting them to never sin. To bear with one another in love means there's going to be things that bother you, annoy you, frustrate you, are wrong even. And it doesn't mean that you have to expect people are going to get it all right. You don't have to expect that your kids are never going to sin. You don't have to expect that your spouse is never going to bother you. You don't have to expect that you're going to join a community group and everyone's going to just going to be paradise. No, it's not. There's going to be problems. And Paul says we overlook it. If you believe and expect people to always get it right, 
That's not what Paul says that we need to do to maintain unity in our relationships. Listen, there is a time that we speak truth to one another. There is a time to correct sin. Yes, there is. We'll talk about this a little bit in a couple weeks. And I've talked about this at other times. And Jesus talks about it. Yes, when there is objective sin in people's lives, and when it reaches a certain level, yes, it is appropriate. But we should also have an expectation of sanctification. Meaning we just don't, aren't, we all have things we're working on and through. And we should expect that instead of thinking that it's godly to actually point out every fault that you see. That will ruin your relationships. And yet sometimes we think that that's what godliness is. Sometimes we think that that's what it means to speak truth. Paul says, you need to be patient, bearing with one another in love, which means we're slow. It means that we are listening and waiting. It means that we're not jumping on one another. It means we're overlooking things. And it means we're doing all of that, Paul says, with love, not just, oh, okay, I'll bear with you and just grit or bitterness. I'm it's not overlooking if you are ruminating on it. It's not bearing with one another in love if you're like, I'm not going to say anything about this, but I hate you in your heart. That's not what Paul's talking about. Sometimes we don't say anything about anything, but we are thinking about it all the time. We're replaying it in our mind. We might actually even be telling other people about it. We have an unspoken prayer request about this person sitting next to me, you know? And it's, that's not bearing with one another in love. In love means we actually are overlooking. We actually are treating with grace. We actually are believing the best. That's what it means. Paul says doing this is the focus that we need. And this is worthy of the calling that we've been given. This is how Jesus treats us. Jesus treats us in this exact same way, with patience and bearing with us in love. He is patient with our sins, never ignoring them, but but man, I'm so thankful that the Holy Spirit doesn't all at once just say, let me convict you of everything that you've ever been dealing with. Here's a list, giant Holy Spirit scroll, points it all out. He is patient with us. He's careful with us. He bears with us in love, knowing I'm working with you. I'm in progress with you. That is how Jesus is to you. That's how he was with us in salvation. It's how he is with us now, which is why this is walking worthy of the calling that we've been given. It's in line with how he treats us. So much would be avoided, wouldn't it? If we had that heart, if we believed the best about people and were slow to make judgments, if we were just bearing with one another, with the sins, particularly the sins that are being done against us, that we overlook them, instead of feeling like being offended is actually godly. And then... The third piece is, he says, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is the idea of being a peacemaker, fighting for, working for peace, working to resolve, working to forgive, working to show grace. When you have problems in your relationships, do you exit them? Do you ignore them? Do you just gossip about them, feel bitter about them? Or do you say, I'm going to make peace? I want there to be peace. I want there to be unity. I am going to make every effort to be a peacemaker. That includes forgiveness. It includes grace. 
It does at times include honesty and conversation, but it's working to fight, making every effort to make peace. That means it's work, but again, it's worthy of the calling. That's what God did for us. He made, Paul elsewhere says that he made peace by the blood of the cross, meaning he made peace, but the cost of it was heavy. It was through the cross. His blood shed for us that he gave us peace with God and one another. He made peace. That's why it's worthy of the calling. God did that with us. He made every effort to make peace with you. We were hostile to God. We reject God. We ignore God. We're separated from God. And he didn't say, fine, whatever. I don't care. Suits you. Suits me. He said, I'm going to make peace. I'm going to do every effort to make peace with you. And now, if you're a Christian, you have peace with God. You have peace eternally. You have peace emotionally with God because he made every effort to give it to you. That's why it's walking worthy of our calling to make peace with one another. If we try to avoid sin, you'll have no relationships. If you try to avoid difficulty, you'll have no relationships. This mentality, this focus allows there to be differences. It allows there even to be sin. I'm not saying sin is okay, but it allows us to know, yeah, we're all working on things together. We don't have to be so on edge. It allows a posture that strengthens us. So where is your focus in your relationships? Where's your focus? What are you you looking at? When there's problems, especially, when there's difficulty, What are you focused on? Oftentimes, it's the other people's problems or the situations that need to change to make things better. He says, focus on what's going on inside of you, your humility, your patience, your peacemaking. What would happen if you started there with your spouse? What would happen there if you started there with your kids? What would happen there if you you started there with your community group in, in the church and said, I'm going to focus on me and my posture and my heart. Final thing that we need is a foundation. We need to have a fight. Know that relationships are difficult, and yet it's a worthy fight. We need to have a focus, not on what's happening out here, but inside of us. And then we need to have a foundation. What is all of this based on? Where does it come from? What can we return to and build from? And oftentimes we think that unity comes as we just kind of agree to all get along. Let's all just be nice. Let's all just be tolerant. Let's all just be okay. I'm okay with you. You're okay with me. Sometimes we think it's just we're all going to think the same, be the same, look the same. All of those are weak foundations. We need more than that to actually have unity or depth or closeness in any of our relationships. Paul says you need a better foundation, and and here's what he gives to us. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all, through all, and in all. This is how he closes, giving us this as the foundation. Why, Why list out all this stuff at the end of his appeal to making every effort to fight for unity? Because this is the foundation that it's built on. It's not 
a random list of stuff that he just is like, uh, I don't know, one this, one that, one this, one that. It's, he's saying, this is the foundation for the unity that I'm appealing to you to fight for, for the unity that God's already given you that you have to maintain, for the, the gift and the call that he's blessed you with that you have to work to fight to experience. This is the foundation. One body is referring to the church, saying God has given you a family. He's brought you into the body of Christ. One spirit, the same Holy Spirit dwells inside of you if you're a Christian, convicting you, leading you, empowering you. One hope, that if you're a Christian, we all have the same hope of what God's going to do in our life, the same future, the same confidence, the same confidence in what God will do in the world, the same confidence of what he will do in your life, the same confidence in eternal glory with him. One Lord, we submit to the same King, Jesus. Our lives are built around. We want to know, follow, obey, enjoy, belong to the same Lord. In this time, it's not Caesar is Lord, which was a confession you had to make, but Jesus is Lord. My life is built on him. One faith, when it's using faith here, it's not our trust of God, but kind of a body of truth that is passed on from the apostles to us. We have the same beliefs we're united around. One baptism, whether you're Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, we all agree that baptism is the sign that you are entered into God's family. It is the seal that shows God's washing of your sin and your unification to him. Dion mentioned this at the beginning, but if you haven't been baptized yet and you are a Christian, we encourage you, sign up to explore what that looks like and be baptized on Easter. One God and Father of all. The same Father, same one that we pray to, the same one who runs our family. That is what Paul gives to us as the foundation. And as we look at this, it does two things. The first thing it does is helps us to see our commonality. When he goes over and over and says, one, 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 that's saying there's a lot that you have in common. There's a lot that you have in common. You might look at people and be like, what, I don't, what do I have in common with these people? We have different views, different ages, different races, different appearances. What, what's one thing I even have in common with these people? My, my younger nephew, um, at Christmas time, we were there. And he's, uh, he, he, I can't remember exactly what happened, but there was some argument between him and his older brother, and they're like nine and 12, and so, you know, that they argue, that's what happens with brothers, and they're arguing, and the, my younger nephew, he said, give me one way, and then he was like, no, give me six ways that I did that, and he's like, and I was like, that's actually a brilliant tactic, you know, he says, it's easy to show one way and prove someone wrong, he's like, give me six ways, and I was like, oh, this is he is a middle child. He's learned how to defend himself, protect himself. But I think that's kind of what Paul's doing. He's like, give me one thing I've got in common. No, I'll, I'll give you seven things you have in common. And he gives this list, piling it up. Because the deeper that we share things in common, oftentimes the deeper that a relational bond is found. That, that's true even at superficial levels, right? If you meet someone, they're, they're from the same town or same city or same region, like, oh, you're from, I'm from Seattle. Oh, you're from Seattle? Oh, that's cool. I'm from Seattle too. There's kind of like a, a surface level connection that automatically is formed. I'm Puerto Rican. So anytime I meet another Puerto Rican, I remember one time there was this guy at a coffee shop. He had a Puerto Rican uh, flag tattoo. I was like, hey, you're Puerto Rican? And he was like, yeah, you are? Yeah. And he like gave me a big hug. 
It's like, I don't know this guy, but automatically there's a connection that's formed. Even at superficial levels, same town, same school, same... It, and the deeper that that commonality goes, the deeper that those bonds are, which is why Paul just layers it, layers it, layers it, saying, I'll give you seven ways that you have things in common. The deepest things, the most important things in common with other people. This is a foundation. It's, it's a deeper foundation than just we like the same sports team, we're the same age, we look the same, we're into the same sports in Denver, we like the same whiskey, we like the same restaurant. It's a deeper foundation than that. He's giving you the deepest of things, saying, you have this in common with people. It's why if somebody is a Christian, you share the most important things in common with them, the deepest things possible he gives to you. What if you remembered, think about how this is a foundation for unity. What if you remembered that, especially with people that maybe you have a difficulty with or a conflict with or some, some annoyance with, or it's difficult to be patient with them. Or if you remembered, we're, we're the same in the things that matter the most. And then he, it does, so it does that. It establishes a, a deep commonality, but it also reminds us with the actual words themselves, these are things that God has done for them. So they're things that God has done for you, yes, but part of why this establishes a foundation for unity is because you're remembering this is what God has done for them. Think about how powerful this is if you remember, you know what, here's this person that I'm in conflict with. We'll go back to George at the supermarket. George, the checker, if he's got the Holy Spirit in him, I'm saying God has given him, God lives inside of him. How can I be in conflict with someone? God lives inside of them right now. The same Holy Spirit is convicting him, working on him, comforting him, seeking to change him. God's inside of him right now. God gave him his, he's a part of God's body. My hand's not in conflict with this hand. We're in the same body. God gave him the body, his family. If I remember, they, we've got the same hope. We both believe that God's going to restore this world, and we both believe that we're going to be spending eternity together. I'm going to spend eternity with that person. It's hard to be in conflict with someone if you remember, I'm going to be in eternity with this. God wants this person in his family forever. He must be crazy. God, God wants this person with him forever. God is preparing a place in heaven for him right now. This person that I'm in conflict with, God is assuring that person of the eternal future that he has with him. If I remember, we have the same Lord. I'm in conflict with this person, but they say that Jesus is their Lord, that they're seeking to obey Jesus, walk with Jesus. We have, the, we have the same faith. We're trusting in the same things, same beliefs. We've both been in the waters of baptism, saying our sins are forgiven and we're united with Jesus. We're both saying we're united to Jesus. We're both saying we have the same God. We're, that means you're praying to the same person. You're talking to your father. God, please help this person. And they're talking to him too. God's hearing both your prayers about each other. If you remember that, that builds a foundation of community. This, these are not just things that God did for you. Isn't it so easy to just kind of, man, Jesus is my savior. He died for me. And forget, oh, Jesus died for that person. Jesus, If you remember those things, Jesus loves that person. That person is his daughter. That person is his son. That person's in his family. 
if you remember that about other people, it helps to create a foundation for community. Maybe even just try that for a second. Think about somebody that maybe is difficult for you, that is difficult to maintain the closeness, the unity. And just, I'm going to give you like 10 seconds to do this. Just say their name, not out loud. Don't be ridiculous. Say their name. <laughs> say their name and then just kind of repeat one of those things or a few of those things. Say, they have the same Lord. Blank has the same father. Think about someone, maybe that's difficult for you. This is not a shallow unity. This gives a strong foundation. Say, we have the deepest things in common, and God has done for them what he's done for me. That builds a foundation to return to, to fight for, to have a focus that is healthy. There's a lot that seeks to pull us apart and push us away from one another. There's a lot. And so Paul is seeking to say, God gave you this unity, but he also wants to help you fight for it, keep it. We all want community. We all want a depth and a closeness of relationship, and it is given to us by Jesus. But keeping it doesn't come easy. Keeping it is difficult. How do we do it? We have to know. We have to remember. We have to engage in a fight, a focus, and a foundation. Doing that enables us to do what Paul says, to walk worthy of the calling that we've been given. We're going to take communion in just a moment. If you're a Christian, a communion, uh, you, if you didn't grab a communion cup on the way in, you can grab one of those. But communion's a time that we remember that Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. That's the calling that we've been given. That's what he has done for us. That is how he bore with us. It's how he was patient with us. It's how he was humble towards us. It's how he made peace with us. We're remembering, here's what he did for me. And we're asking God to then let that become real to us, to thank him for what he did, and then to live in line with that in our relationships. So as you take communion, thank him for the calling. Thank him for what he's done. Thank him for all the ways that he has united you to himself. Thank him for that. And confess where you have not lived worthy of that calling in specific relationships with specific people. Confess and then ask God to help you to engage in these ways. If you've got your build notebooks, you can even write down in the community section some of these things. Who, who do I need to make peace with? That might be a good question to reflect on. Who, who do I need to make charitable judgments of? Reflect on some of those things and ask God to not just give you relationships. You, you might have them already, but ask him to help you to fight and to focus and have a strong foundation with them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the fact that you have done everything to unite us with you. That you forgive us of our sin, that you make peace with us, that you call us into your family. Thank you for these gifts. Help us to live worthy of them. Help us to make every effort to maintain the unity 
that you have bought for us. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.